All right, good morning. Let's settle in, open our Bibles, or navigate on your device to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Most of you know we're going through a verse-by-verse study of the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 20, verses 22 through 26. The topic, before giving them the law, God instructs the Israelites on the building of an altar. The title of our message, Altar Joys. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for uh, thus far, Lord, just thrilling our hearts with the opportunity to sing to you and to just release uh, some of the love, Lord, that we have for you. We appreciate your son, Jesus Christ, how he came for us and died on the cross for us and rose from the dead for us and is coming back for us. And we like to think about him building our mansion in heaven right now and what that's going to be like. Lord, I pray that Jesus would be in our message this morning as we talk about the uh, altar in the Old Testament, that we would see him high and lifted up. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Here are five sports cliches I never want to hear again. We gave 110%. We brought our A game. Nobody ever says they brought their B game. They just wanted it more. I don't know what that means. He came to play as opposed to showing up drunk, I guess. And my favorite, there's no I in team. There is a me, though. Yes, I got beat you to it. Then there are these dumb quotes from sports figures. I'm sure that they wish they could take these back. Six-time Pro Bowl wide receiver Chad Ochocinco once said, I'm traveling to all 51 states to see who can stop number 85. (laughs) Australian golfer Greg Norman said, I owe a lot to my parents, especially my mother and father. (laughs) Five-time NBA champion Dennis Rodman, chemistry is a class you take in high school or college where you figure out two plus two is 10 or something. (laughs) Former NBA center Chuck Nevitt, my sister's expecting a baby, and I don't know if I'm going to be an uncle or an aunt. <laughs> Ten-time, and this one, this one requires a little bit of math. Ten-time NBA All-Star Jason Kidd. We're going to turn this team around 360 degrees. Thank you. I'm done. That's it. It doesn't get better than that. Now, no list like this would be complete without a quote from Yogi Berra. When asked by his wife where he wanted to be buried, he replied, surprise me. (laughs) Now, even though I hate sports cliches because of their overuse, I often find my mind drifting to them. For example, in our verses today, we get instruction about the altar of sacrifice, I caught myself thinking, we need to leave it all on the altar. As it turns out, leave it all on the altar isn't so cliche after all. We're told in the New Testament to present our bodies a living sacrifice. That's Romans 12.1. The scholars at Dallas Theological Seminary comment on this, and they say the word bodies, mindful of the Old Testament sacrifices, represents the totality of one's life and activities, of which his body is the vehicle of expression. Totality, that sounds a lot like all to me. Now, the word altar is first used when Noah built an altar to the Lord after leaving the ark. 
Altars are implied prior to that, and we see men build altars after that. But as far as I can tell, our verses in Exodus are the first time God gives instruction about building an altar. If we're going to leave it all on the altar, we'll need to hear what God had to say. I'll organize my comments about the altar around two points. Number one, to worship God, you need an altar. And number two, to worship God, you have an altar. Let's take a look at our needing the altar first. Now, Josephus, uh, the first century Jewish historian, he informs us that the Syrian governor, Cestius Gallus, requested the high priest take a census of Jerusalem to convince Nero of the importance of the city and of the Jewish nation. The method used by the high priest was to count the number of lambs slain annually at Passover. The figure they reported was over a quarter of a million. Now, it's likely an exaggeration, but a lot of lambs were slain for sure. And that doesn't take into consideration every other sacrifice throughout the year and throughout the centuries. And so it was a bloody place. But for all the slaughter committed there, God's altar communicates that salvation is by grace. It really does. In the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's Genesis 3.15. Scholars have labeled these words the proto-evangelium. That translates to the first gospel. So they can't just call it the first gospel. They have to call it something that we can't pronounce. It's the gospel being preached for the first time in the Bible. Adam, Eve, and Satan may not have fully understood what God meant, but we do. He meant that as the seed of the woman, he was coming himself as a man, coming as God in human flesh to defeat the devil by paying the penalty for sin. God immediately showed Adam and Eve and, and Satan what that payment would involve. As God in human flesh, he would die to pay the penalty. His death is prefigured by the killing of animals in order to provide Adam and Eve with their proper clothing. It was probably lambskin, although we're not told, but it symbolized a more spiritual reality. God was clothing them spiritually with what he would later call his robe of righteousness. They were naked and ashamed sinners, but God would die in order to clothe them with his righteousness. It was a gift. It was all by God's grace. Adam and Eve were required only to believe God. The Genesis account and the Proto-Evangelium has been passed down through the generations. The Israelites in the Exodus knew it well. Thus, an altar upon which animals were sacrificed should remind the Israelites of God's promise to come and to die as their substitute and savior for sin. It was the place that reminded them that salvation was God's gift to them, that they were saved by grace through faith. Now, previous to our verses, God had spoken the Ten Commandments. After our verses, beginning in chapter 21, continuing all the way through chapter 24, God's laws will be further expanded. The altar is strategically placed before the further instruction in the law. It was a reminder that they were made right with God, not by keeping the law, but by God's grace in making the way of salvation by the redemption of his blood. The law followed redemption by blood as the means of enjoying a relationship with God and with others. And so let's take a look at this altar beginning in verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. 
Now, this should arrest our attention. They had been addressed personally by the living God in real time and space. You've heard it said, and you've probably said yourself of your believing in Jesus, that it's not a religion, it's a relationship. relationship. That has always been true for those in every era who believe God. God and Israel were in a personal living relationship. The laws that follow were not means to be a religion so much as they were the prescription of how to best enjoy their relationship with God. Now, the Jews later on would pervert this and think that keeping the law made them self-righteous, but that wasn't the original intent. God, who saved them by grace, redeemed them by his blood, now would give them some basic rules so that they could enjoy that relationship with him and with others. Do you have rules in your home? Sure you do. It helps things to run smoothly to know what is expected of dad and mom and the kids. The rules don't create those relationships. They follow after them and make the relationships more enjoyable when they are followed. Wouldn't it be a great day if all your kids followed all your rules in the home? That lasts until about 8 a.m. But the rules are good. They don't make you, they, they don't put you in relationship. They define it and they help you to enjoy it. God gave the law to Israel as household rules and regulations so that their relationship with him and, we ch- and with each other might be enjoyable. And so verse 23, you shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. Now, we are used to thinking of gods as mere inanimate idols of silver or gold. I've been pointing out that the word for gods in Hebrew is the plural of Elohim. It's important to realize that Elohim is not actually a name of God. In the Bible, Elohim is used of any being that inhabits the supernatural realm. God is an Elohim, but so are angels and demons and the departed spirits of human beings. For example, Psalm 8, verse 5 reads, You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned man with glory and honor. In that verse, the word for the angels is Elohim, and so they inhabit the supernatural realm. Why is this important? Well, first of all, it's important because it's the correct interpretation. It's also important if you want to get a better sense of what was at stake. It seems as though idols may, in some cases, be more than mere inanimate objects of silver and gold. They may be empowered by gods that we would call demons. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote, this is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 20, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons." And so when the Gentiles were going into those temples there in Corinth and bowing down before before the idols, Paul said there are demons behind those idols, real supernatural powers and presence. Concerning these gods, one writer said, the biblical approach to the gods of the pagans is not as simple as merely scoffing and consigning them to the realm of fantasy. The reality was often more tragic and harmful than the mere fantasy. The scriptures hold forth the fearsome likelihood that many of these gods were in fact demons in disguise. Now, the Israelites had been in Egypt for over four centuries. We know that Egypt had many idols representing their multitude of gods, and that ritual magic was performed. And by magic, I don't mean card tricks. It's not like going to the magic shop at Disneyland and getting an optical illusion. You remember during the 10 plagues, two Egyptian magicians 
uh, identified for us in the New Testament as Janus and Jambres, they didn't pull rabbits out of a hat. They, for one thing, turned their staffs into real snakes. It wasn't an optical illusion. They were able to turn their staffs into living snakes. Now, Moses' snake ate their snake. Remember when we were there, I, th- I think they were crocodiles because the, the word can be translated crocodile, and I just think that would be a lot cooler to see crocodiles, but that's just me. They were also able to replicate a few of the plagues before having to admit that Moses' God was superior to their gods. This was genuine demonic power on display. It was the work of little g gods being evoked through idols. When Almighty God told the Israelites to not make anything to be with me, it could be he was warning them to not try to evoke his presence through ritual magic. If you watch supernatural movies or television shows, they're always trying to bring some presence through ritual, right? That's the whole basis of it. That's calling evoking. You are evoking the presence of some uh, supernatural being. And so it could be that God's saying, hey, don't, don't even try that. I am in a living personal relationship with you. I'm not a power that can be evoked into an object by some kind of ritual magic. And remember, that's all they had known uh, in Egypt. Besides, it just doesn't make sense to try to replicate God in an object. A company called Terrasim Movement aims to, and I quote, transfer human consciousness to computers and robots. They want to replicate your dead loved ones with robot clones, complete with a digital copy of the person's brain. I love this quote from the manager of the company. He said this, it's like when people stuff a pet cat or dog. We don't stuff humans, but this is a way of stuffing their information, their personality, and their mannerisms. Just like you wouldn't think a digital replica is your loved one, you can't make anything and think it replicates the living God. Now, verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. On a simple earthen altar, the Israelites were to offer animal sacrifices. God specified two types of sacrifices, burnt offerings and peace offerings. The Hebrew word for burnt offering means to ascend. Literally, it means to go up in smoke. It refers to the smoke from the sacrifice ascending before God. It was the complete destruction of the animal except for the animal's hide. The peace offering didn't have to be an animal. It could be grain. Only a portion of it was burned, and it wasn't, as we might think, something offered to make peace. Today, if you're having problems with somebody, you might say, well, I need to give them a peace offering and and come into a relationship like that. That wasn't it at all. Another name for it, a better name, is the fellowship offering. The parts of it that were not burned were eaten as a festive meal to illustrate fellowship with one another, in this case, fellowship between the worshiper and God. It's an oversimplification, but I think you see that the death of the substitute in the burnt offering makes it possible to be at peace with God and to fellowship with him, symbolized by the festive meal. The burnt offering reminds you salvation is by grace through faith, and the peace offering invites you to then have fellowship with God and with his people. Looking at the altar, I can't help but think of the words in the New Testament that say, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life. The burnt offering highlights the wages of sin. 
Sin required the death of an innocent substitute. The peace offering, that's the enjoyment of eternal life now and forever, thanks to God's sacrifice of himself. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you, God said. In other words, wherever God led them, it was his intent to be present among them in order to personally bless them. You've probably heard the term deism or deist. It's the belief in the existence of a supreme being, specifically of a creator, but one who does not intervene in the universe. It's sometimes explained as a clockmaker. He made the clock with all of its intricacies, and then he wound it up, and then he let it go, and it's all on its own. It's actually a really popular belief. If you become aware of it, you'll see it promoted in television shows and movies uh, and, and that kind of a thing. God, the God of the Bible, our God, does intervene. History is unfolding just as he has written it in advance. We are headed towards the creation of new heavens and a new earth. He wants to be present with mankind, and he is. Verse 25, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use a tool on it, you have profaned it. God was okay with a simple earthen altar. Sun-dried bricks or packed earth were sufficient building materials. If the Israelites chose to use stone instead, it must not be hewn or engraved in any way. Now, all of that goes against our grain. We almost automatically think we must do more for God. If God wants me to build an altar, I'm going to make it the most elaborate, uh, ornate altar I can build. Now, that might be okay in some things, but it was definitely not the case regarding the altar. If we remember that the altar is a place of grace, it's easy to understand why God would give this prohibition. Any craftsmanship on the part of the offerer would take away from the altar communicating grace. And so if I make an elaborate altar in order to make my offering, I almost look like I'm partnering with God. God said I need to offer a sacrifice. I'm going to offer it on a magnificent altar that speaks of uh, whatever. And God says, no, earthen altar, and if you insist on using stones, just pile them up because I don't want anybody to miss the symbolism that I am providing salvation by grace through faith. Again, the New Testament helps us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Verse 26, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. As one commentator put it, man could contribute nothing either by the tools of personal effort or the steps of human achievement. Another wrote, the use of tools would corrupt the whole plan of redemption by blood. Pagan worshipers built their altars very high, partly through pride and partly in the belief that their gods might hear them better. Many such altars had gods and symbols engraved upon them. The Israelite altar would look puny and pathetic compared to the altars of the other gods. And that was part of what God was revealing about himself, about his character and about his nature. He would come as a servant, humble, born in a manger, not having anything outwardly that would commend us to him. He would die on the cross as if he were a heinous criminal, then be buried in a borrowed tomb. It all lacked grandeur, but it all proclaimed grace. And that's the intent that God wants us to get here from this altar, 
He doesn't need the grandeur. He is the grandeur. He just needs to show us his grace. That your nakedness may not be exposed excluded plumbers from going up the steps. (laughs) Sorry about that. I, I debated with that one. Nakedness or near nakedness were common in Egypt. According to one researcher, the ancient Egyptians wore a minimum of clothing. Apparently, underwear was not popular. Later in Exodus, we'll see the garments of the priests will include a type of underwear, type of breeches, to cover their nakedness. Now, the mention of nakedness takes our mind back to the Garden of Eden, or it should. Before they sinned, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed before each other and in the sight of God. After they sinned, they were naked and ashamed. As we said earlier, God covered their nakedness with animal skins. The altar was the place that reminded the Israelites of original sin and the coming of God to be their substitute and Savior. It was the place that represented them being graciously clothed in God's righteousness. It would therefore ruin the illustration to show nakedness at the altar. The whole purpose of the altar was to cover the nakedness that had been uh, made possible by that phone call. Sorry about that. See, I just get so distracted. Your plumber calling. <laughs> so you understand what I'm saying? It, it, it wasn't it, modesty. I mean, we could talk about modesty and all that kind of stuff and the fact that many pagan priests and priestesses would serve at their altars naked. But there's a far more important symbolic meaning to that. God said the whole idea of the, of the altar is that I am atoning for, I am covering your sin And so any nakedness would take away from that, the analogy that he has clothed us with his righteousness. If you're counting on being a good person, having done more good than bad in order to be admitted into heaven when you die, you need to take a long look at this altar. Men and women are redeemed by blood, not by the blood of lambs, but by the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus. All the animal sacrifices until his death on the cross were pointing to him dying once for all in full to pay the penalty that we owed for sin. As evangelists like to say, he came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Salvation is being offered to you. It's a gift, but you must receive it by faith, calling upon the Lord turning from your sin. If you're not a believer here this morning, at the end of our service, some of the guys will be up front and we would invite you to come forward and and just be prayed for. Now, secondly, if you want to worship God, you have an altar. This is good news. The New Testament book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew Christians suffering persecution for having faith in Jesus Christ. All they had to do was uh, to avoid their persecution was to return to the rites and rituals of the temple Rituals like the burnt offering and the peace offering, uh, taking them to the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. The writer essentially told them, no can do. By his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has fulfilled and ended those things. They were a shadow pointing to his coming. To return to them is to deny or despise what Jesus has done. With regard to the altar, the writer to the Hebrews proclaims, This is Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
The writer was using the altar to represent the whole Jewish system of worship centered at the temple. We, meaning Christians, have an altar that is not the one in the temple where they're urging you to return to and offer sacrifice. We have a superior spiritual altar in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those who serve the tabernacle are those who were urging and even persecuting the Hebrew Christians to return to things like animal sacrifices. In Jesus, we have spiritual blessings and benefits that far surpass the eating of peace offerings made on the altar. Outwardly, it may seem we have no altar. That's because we have no material altar. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem was the place God recorded his name and came to us. It was his prescribed place of worship. But it hasn't existed since it was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus and the Roman legions. But we do have an altar, a far superior altar, and it is Jesus. Our altar isn't just the cross on which Jesus died. It's everything about him. It's his life and his cross and his death and his burial. It's his resurrection. It's his ascension. It's his second coming. It's everything and anything about our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is our altar, You might say that the entire new covenant in his blood is our altar. And that's why we don't need to return to these things. That's why we don't offer animals anymore. Uh, And he was that final lamb. They all prefigured him. And to go back on that is to go back on his covenant. Alexander McLaren said, and I quote, the writer exalts the purely spiritual worship of Christianity as not only possessed of all which the rituals round about it presented, but as being high above them, even in regard to that which seemed their special prerogative. That's a fancy way of saying that everything that was in the temple pointed to the coming of Jesus Christ, and now that he's come, he has fulfilled it, and he is everything to us. And so we don't, you know, you might read a devotion. I'm not saying they're wrong where people say we need to build an altar or have a certain altar. Jesus is the altar. I don't need to build an altar. I need to offer myself to Jesus as a living sacrifice every day in the totality of my being uh, so that I can be used by him and so that I can know him better. We no longer come to the altar with burnt offerings and peace offerings, but we do present ourselves. Just as the burnt offering was totally consumed, We can ask ourselves, am I totally consumed with the pursuit of God in my life? I would guess, uh, my answer would be no, uh, because that's a, you know, that's, that's quite a statement. To say that I am totally consumed with the pursuit of God would be a lie, making me a liar, and, and, and I don't want to do that. But is that your intent? Do we wake up each day and want to be totally consumed with the Lord? And just as the fellowship offering was shared, we can be encouraged to share more of our time and talent and treasure with God and among his people in the church and out among non-believers by sharing the gospel as we have opportunity. And so let's leave it all on the altar and bring our Jesus game. Amen.